morning. The people on stage this morning, they're not just amazing musicians, but several of them were decent actors in <laughs> last night's film. I mean, fantastic actors in last night's film festival. Uh, we had a, just a great time last night. Uh, if you don't know about Hope's Film Fest, uh, it gives small groups an opportunity to make films over the course of several weeks with an assigned genre and a uh, mandatory line of dialogue and prop. And then at the end of it, we, we get together and we, we have a great night just uh, watching those and enjoying that. And so if you need some levity this week uh, or stupidity, uh, they're going to be rolling out on, on YouTube. And, and so take some time, waste some time uh, with that. Uh, last week, we canceled Sunday morning service. You remember that? You remember when you woke up and you looked out your window, there wasn't much. I mean, what we got compared to all of the other February snowstorms was uh, quite, quite small, but we expected something far worse. <laughs> so we anticipated that it was going to be bad news, and so uh, we did have service over at Lower Town, but what we Expected versus what we got. There was, there was a little bit of difference there. Um, but uh, when we talk about what we expect and what we, what we get, I, I can't help but think of the Christian life. And maybe, I don't know how the, the Christian life was shared with you, shared to you, proclaimed, and, and kind of opened up to you. I, I was uh, kind of exposed to the Christian message during my freshman year at the University of Minnesota. And if you're familiar with the ministry of Campus Crusade or Crew, there's this booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. God loves you and sin separates you and Jesus died for you and you can pray and, and receive Christ. And at that point, my life was in shambles. The, the, the ways, the pillars that I had built my life on had been taken from me, like school and football and, and friendship and just feeling disconnected from life. And... Uh, I mean, it really felt like Jesus was gonna make all my dreams come true. And, and in so many ways he did, but what I have expected based on that conversation and what I have actually experienced, quite different. And may, maybe you can identify with that. If so, uh, you'll be right at home with our, our sermon series called Between Two Worlds. We are looking at this letter written by one of the disciples of Jesus. He wrote this letter to a group of people that were, were scattered displaced. Um, commentators discussed, you know, did they come from Jerusalem and were kind of scattered from the, the, the area that we talk about being the promised land? Or was this more people that were displaced from Rome that as kind of the edict goes out, like anybody associated with Christ is going to face persecution or death? Did they flee eastward back to this area? Uh, but we, what we know based on the contents of the letter is that this is a group of, of wanderers, of, of foreigners and exiles, and so they are living between two worlds. They're living in this world like, like us. We, we go about our days, our work, our, our families, our relationships. But there's also this anticipation of another world, a different world, a world in which full restoration happens. What we experience now in part at that time will be experienced in fullness. And so we've been talking about this idea of living between two worlds and Peter's encouragement to the church then and there, but, but also here and now. And with that, I just want to open up our time in prayer. So will you bow your heads in prayer with me? 
Father, right now, each of us comes to your word and comes to this preaching time with different thoughts and different feelings. Each of us has had a different week leading up to this point. We battle with different sins and struggles and temptations. Some of us have healthy, helpful, holy homes and, and families and friendships. And others of us don't have that, and we want that. And so, God, as we come into this place and as we sit before your word, may it speak to us. May it resonate with us. Holy Spirit, do something that can only be attributed to God, not, not core, not the ministry of hope, but to you, being present in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So given that not all of you were able to make it to Lower Town last, last Sunday, let me just recap where we were last Sunday from 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. It's a great time to pull out your, your Bible, whether electronic or, or paper, any paper. Who wants to just, yeah, raise them up there, hi. Can't, you can't quite do it like with your phone, put on the light and kind of shine the light of your Bible up. But um, this is also a time where if you grab the sermon notes on, the, on your way in, those are always posted at the, the doorways as you come into the sanctuary. So we're gonna look at four to 10 very briefly, and then we're gonna jump into just two verses, verses 11 and 12, um, and see what they might have for us. So let me just recap from last Sunday. It reads, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So just very briefly, this idea of a living stone, this idea of a cornerstone, Jesus being that living stone, Jesus being that cornerstone, and, in, and the cornerstone of a building is the way by which they determine every other stone in that building. It is the keystone. Everything else gets determined based on that cornerstone. And, and for us, spiritually speaking, as the house of God is built, everything keys off Jesus, okay? And that's what's being communicated here. Now, keep reading. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And so in this, this idea of this stone that the builders rejected, who are the builders? In all likelihood, this is the Israelites, this is a reference to Old Testament, this, that they were the builders. They were the recipients of the oracles, the promises of God, the prophets. God sent his priests to this group of people that they might be a light to the nations, but they weren't. Many times they looked inward at themselves, seeing themselves as the one and only chosen people of God, the only special people in God's sight. But they were to be builders. They were to be sharers of this news, of this message of God's grace and so it is factual that, that Jesus comes to be the chief cornerstone and the builders, the Israelites, reject him. 
They had expectations for a Messiah, expectations for a, a Savior, expectations for a hero that went unmet in Jesus. And so in our modern-day language, what this is is we, we're expecting a Savior. We're expecting a hero of the likes of Thor, and Frodo shows up, right? Like, we, we want Thor. Thor looks like a superhero, right? Frodo doesn't look like the one who's going to save us, Okay? And so these builders reject Jesus because they didn't meet his expectations. They didn't meet, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. And so now we switch from Jesus being a cornerstone of the building of believers for Jesus now becomes a different type of stone, a stumbling stone. Jesus now impedes their way toward salvation and they stumble, they trip over Christ because he didn't meet their expectations. And so... One of the things that we feel like is critical in our ministry here as a church is that if you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, if you're checking out the Bible, okay, over the course of human history, if you just imagine the number of hooks and things that have gotten attached to those hooks and hung on those hooks throughout Christendom, right? How many things have been added to God's word and to God's story and to God's salvation? So many things are impeding the world from knowing Jesus, from seeing Jesus clearly, inclusive of the church, of us. And that's the thing we want to guard against. We want the stumbling stone, the only stumbling stone, to be Jesus. That if people are offended by Christianity, they're offended because they look at the cross and they see in it scandal. How could God hang on a tree? How could God just cover over sin? How could God die? And then they reject this cornerstone. They stumble over Christ rather than receive Christ. And though that grieves us, biblically, that's the only stumbling stone that should be put in front of people. Not you and me, not, not our attitudes, not the way that we might potentially mistreat other people. Even as we're having conversations about worship 3.0, where are we going with our, our worship services in the future? So many of those conversations are, how can we remove barriers rather than add barriers? We, we want Christ to be central, Christ to be the focus. Continuing on, it says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if you look here, people group, or priesthood, or nation, or possession, there's this new group of people, this new building, that's come about because of Christ being our cornerstone. If we believe in him, we'll not be put to shame. If we believe in him, we become a part of a new group. We receive a new identity, and that identity is connected to the church. And so the language that Peter uses here, he hits it several different angles, just that you are a people, that you are a priesthood, that you are a nation, but then he gives adjectives like chosen and royal and holy. So the idea being depicted here is, imagine just a, a, a pair of brothers that, that, that grow up in the Middle East and in every conceivable manner 
have like-mindedness and, and, and just lives that parallel one another. Now imagine a pair of sisters in, in Southern Asia, same identity, same, same religious beliefs, same political beliefs, in so many ways their lives parallel one another. But let's imagine one of the brothers and one of the sisters comes to know Jesus. Receive Jesus as the living stone, as the precious cornerstone of their lives. Now those two individuals, though they have so much in common with their sibling, they now have a bond together. They now become a part of this chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, a part of God's special possession that stands out and above any of their earthly ties. It doesn't mean those dis those distinctions or those relationships or those backgrounds don't matter. It's just something becomes of greater consequence and greater importance that this people, this priesthood, this nation, this possession, this church is of the utmost importance of their lives. And that's, that's us. So there's, no matter what background you come from, no matter what your political persuasion or, or education no matter what your job and what kind of lifestyle that affords you, what's most important about the church is that we are united because of Christ. And because that's true, it doesn't matter how different those people are that you are interacting with in the world, we might have unity and oneness with them potentially through Christ. God can overcome every distinction, every difference, and unite us as part of this chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation that together we might declare his praises. All of that is a setup for this week. And really this week now, there's a turning point in the book. If you go into different commentaries, they'll often give an outline. This is kind of a hinge point where once we launch into chapter two, verse 11, we, we launch into about three chapters worth of Peter saying, okay, because I laid the framework, the foundation of how, how important our lives are in Christ, and our faith being in him, and us becoming not just a perishable seed, but an imperishable seed. If you remember some of the language of past weeks. Now, what does that mean for our lives? What does this mean as living as a displaced people, an exilic people? What do, we, what do we do with that? How do we live scattered, and yet still as the church? So here we go, launching into uh, our two verses for today. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let me read it one more time. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So let me just walk through this bit by bit. I think if you just read it in, at, at first reading and you say, okay, what does this mean for my life? How do I apply this? I think a lot of what you're gonna come up with right now before we go into it will be accurate. 
But let's make sure that in that accuracy, let's, let's get fullness of accuracy, because I think this is a very deep passage, and if we just go at kind of the base reading, we might miss some of the important lessons God has for us. So when it says, dear friends, okay, Peter is talking to this group of people, but he addresses them in this way. And, and dear friends is, is probably gonna get uh, not quite accurate. Some of your versions say beloved, which is a lot closer to the actual word here. It's the same word that God the Father uses to address his son. If you remember that passage where it says, uh, the Father is, is noted as saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved. And so Peter uses the same language to talk about this group of people. And so clearly his affections are for them. Continuing on, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Now this is, this is language that's already been used in the letter, so it's kind of interesting that he would use this description again, like just a chapter later. We, we kind of already know they're displaced people, that they're exiled, that they're foreigners, that they're wanderers, so you have to ask the question, like why would he come back and use that here? And if, I find it fascinating what happens here, okay? So when we talk about foreigners, what, what's being described? Well, you're a temporary dweller. You're not having settled habitation. And so that totally fits with this two-world analogy that we've been talking, right? Like, you, you're a temporary dweller here. You, why? Because you're, you're going to one day go to this other world. And so your time here is temporary. Now, what about exile? What's being communicated there? This, on the other hand, instead of where, the, where, where foreigners kind of you're passing through, exile is almost the opposite. It's, it says, that you're not simply passing through, that you are gonna settle down, however briefly it might be. Might be for a year, might be for many years, but you are actually gonna settle down next to or among native people. You're gonna draw near them. And so both ideas of the, the two worlds that we've been talking about are present in that designation of foreigner and exile. Foreigner, because you're gonna be passing through on your way to the next world, but also as an exile, you're gonna settle down. You're gonna draw near this native people. And I think both of those are critical to the understanding of today's passage. That you're passing through, don't lose that, don't forget where God is taking us, but also draw near to the native. Move in and alongside those who live here. Same idea is captured in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm gonna skip the passage for the sake of time, but, but Abraham is identified as a foreigner and he's gonna come and kind of Live amongst people, but also if you remember Israelites, the story of the Israelites. In Egypt, your resident, your, your exiles, your aliens, I'm gonna take you someday to the promised land. Okay, so this, this idea is not foreign to scripture, it's not foreign to the Bible, that you would be passing through, but also that you might stay for a time. Let's continue on to the next part here. It says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Abstain from sinful desires. So with a foreigner, you're passing through. With an exile, you're settling down next to natives. You're drawing near them. And then he says, abstain, which means get far away from them. And I find that fascinating, right? So as an exile, however temporary it might be, you are going to move into the neighborhood. You're gonna set up your house. You're gonna set up your tent. You're gonna stay a while. You're gonna draw near them. And then the next verb is, hey, Get far away from them. So something's being communicated here of great spiritual importance to us that I think we have to take note of, okay? 
God, through Peter, is communicating something to these people and communicating something to us in our culture, right? Be near your neighbor. Draw near to your office mate. As an exile, however temporary it might be, come near them. Simultaneously, not drawing near to them. Why? Because they have a way of life, a manner of conduct. That there are sinful desires at work in our world that we want to abstain from, that we, we don't want to give ourselves to those. They're inconsistent with the pattern of God, inconsistent with our life, but they are, there's so many sinful desires, worldly, fleshly, carnal, unspiritual, frat row-esque behaviors, right? I don't need to depict them anymore. I think we're all well acquainted. He says, be far from those. Be far, don't give yourself to those desires, those appetites, those lusts. Though you draw near the people, stay far, far away from their attitudes, from their affections, from their thoughts. Clearly, this is one of the big themes throughout the Bible. First John talks about everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. These are inconsistent with God's character, inconsistent with life in Christ. Again, speaking to church people, I'm hoping that that's a, an easy sell, that I don't have to persuade you, hey, here's life and godliness, and we wanna pursue that, and we wanna avoid this, sinfulness and darkness and carnality. And yet, how mindful day in, day out are we of this? Now, as I ask that question, I ask you, ask you to consider that. There is a group within this sanctuary that feels your sin deeply. Feels it. Feels like you'll never get away from it. It impacts your mind and heart daily, throughout the day, many times. You resonate with the psalmist that says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. For others of us, we don't feel our sin that deeply. Maybe we minimize, maybe it's not that big a deal. Maybe we recognize that sin is around us, maybe even a part of us, but this, this idea of the psalmist saying it's always before me, no, not really. Actually, maybe when I go to church or small group, I feel a little bit, a little bit of conviction. One of the ways we've been criticized uh, online uh, in past years is, is Hope Community Church. You, you guys talk about sin too much. <laughs> now, when I hear that, that's about as foreign to me as, hey, when you're coaching baseball, you talk about hitting the ball way too much. You know, like, it's just kind of part of church, part of the Bible, part of Christianity. Now, why? You have to ask the question, why? Why would you talk about sin? Why would you talk about darkness, brokenness, pain, ugliness? To the degree 
that we see sin accurately, as bad as it is, as dark as it is, bring forth death, pain, disruption, chaos to God's world. To the degree and depth that we see how bad it is, we, we will cling to that cross for how good it is. If your sin, if my sin is minimal, not that bad, then that cross is not that big. And that cross is not that good. But if we recognize just how ugly, how grievous before God our sin is, then we, we cling to that cross which screams of God's love and salvation for us, his forgiveness. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It would be unheard of for a troop to be deployed into hostile territory to engage the enemy, to be in war and not recognize it, not talk about it, not give attention to it. Sinful desires, carnal desires, appetites for lust. We all have appetites. We all have taste buds for certain kind of lusts in this world. And they wage war against God's work in our lives. They wage war against life in Christ. I thought, again, going back to what I expected and what I got, I expected when I came to know Christ that life would get easier, battling sin would get easier, sin would get smaller, less prevalent. And in some ways, I couldn't really identify with the words of Paul when he just talks about, man, like everywhere I turn, there's just sin, just frailty and, and brokenness and pain. I see it in our world and I see it in myself. And the longer I go in this Christian life, I just see more and more of how frail and just fragile and given to sin that my heart and my mind. What I expected was a, a picnic with Jesus, meek and mild along the quiet waters of Psalm 23, confronted with a war against sin, battling. About this passage, Karen Job says, says this, the, the verb abstain is, is used elsewhere in ethical exhortation to refer to abstinence from pagan indulgences that, that fuel carnal desires within the believer and thus are antithetical to new life in Christ. The carnal desires Peter has in view may include but are not limited to sexual sin. The noun desires or lusts is, is used elsewhere to refer to any uncurbed human impulse. I like that description. I don't like that description of sin, but I, it's descriptive, I think. Uncurbed human impulse. Letting your taste buds just direct you. In addition to the bodily passions, these unspecified desires may include the desire to be accepted by society more than to please God, to rebel against social norms unnecessarily and to participate in social customs and practices that are abhorrent in God's sight. A primary purpose of a self-controlled life is its evangelistic value for attesting to the truth of the Christian gospel. And that's where the second part of our passage leans into here. It says, live such good lives among the pagans. And pagans, that's, 
I don't like that word because I think it's, it, it, it may denigrate people in your life unnecessarily. I, I, it, it's just a way of saying non-believers. Uh, the actual word is ethnos, e- ethnic, uh, groups of people out there, nations, peoples, right, that don't know God, don't believe in God. And so live such good lives among them. Some of your versions will say keep proper conduct. Only reason I don't like that is because it misses, you lose good. And, and good is, is, is consistent with the rest of the passage and good is consistent with how we've described God uh, in this book. And so it is, live such good lives. Draw near to people in your life. Draw near. Well, stay, simultaneously staying far away in some of their conduct and some of their behavior and attitudes. But live such good lives. Draw near to them and live in such a way amongst the pagans. So let me just hone in just a little bit more on living a good life, because I think many people will say, if you just grab the average person in your office or in your classroom on the street, they'll equate Christianity to living a good life. What do you think about that? What do you think about that designation? Is it wrong, is it right? I think we need to be able to say it's right but incomplete. It follows the good life that Jesus has lived before us. And yet there's struggle, right? Because do we all agree on what the good life is? I think we can safely say, based on living a good life amongst this world, that it's living in such a way that we honor the people we come across. Look what it says in Matthew chapter five. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, almost verbatim to how our passage is gonna end here. Let your light shine before others. Let, let your light give light to everyone. And I think that's key in living a good life. It gives light to everyone. If you are shining your light in such a way that Democrats praise you and Republicans bemoan you, I think we're missing something, and vice versa. And Green Party and Libertarians, right? Like, if you're living in such a way that your light shines and those of great wealth prize you, but those of low wealth despise you, like, I think that says something. But there's something about the fruit of the Spirit, something about God's Spirit moving in our lives that bring forth love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. These are the things that have the possibility of blessing everyone in our lives. Live such good lives. Give light, let your light shine before others. Give light to everyone. With such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Though they accuse you. Failure to live as part of this world has consequences and also opportunities. Consequences. What is one of the consequences of living this life in this world for Christ? It doesn't say they might accuse you. No, it's kind of assumed. They will accuse you. They will slander you. 
And this word is the same word that Peter's already told him, hey, you're not gonna slander other people. So at one point, he's telling the church, you don't get to do this. You don't get to slander other people. But just so you know, the world will slander you. And that's a tension that we face. They will slander you, but we will not slander them and we will not slander one another. But it also has the opportunity that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the opportunity. That's the opportunity that though they accuse us, though they slander us, though they come against us, that we might live in such a way that though they try to slander us, maybe one day, maybe at an opportune time, in a moment of frailty and weakness, when life is not meeting their expectations, maybe, just maybe, they turn, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Imagine, imagine somebody in your office, in your household, in your family, in your group of friends that right now doesn't give a lick about Christ. Doing life with you in six months, six years, 25 years from now, they start to worship God because of what they've seen in your life. That's kind of crazy to think about. That God's given us the opportunity to impact other people that could change their eternity. Kind of changes how you think about Monday morning going to work, right? Like, whoa. So as we think about this passage in its totality, and we think about doing it, obeying it, I think we'll be soon challenged. I know I have been. Abstaining from sinful desires which wage war against my soul, against your soul, against our soul. With such good lives within our communities, within our spheres, that others might see our good deeds and glorify God. I think the, the more often we try to do this, I think, for me, the more often I'm reminded of how difficult it is, how challenging it is. Have you ever left a conversation and like 30 seconds later, driving home, you're like, I should have said this. Ah! I should have done that. Why did I not do that? It was just so obvious. And that's where I think this, this passage really gets turned on its head for me. At the end of the day, I read this and I meditate on this and I pray over these words. And like the psalmist, I just, I just see my frailty in the midst of this and I see my brokenness and I feel, I feel an inability to live up to these words, to live up this standard, this calling. And that's where for me, the key of this passage, the key for, this, for me this week has been remind myself that that ultimately at the end of this day, to take my eyes off of myself, my own performance, and to recognize Jesus. How so? This is appropriate for you and I come Monday morning. But it's also appropriate 
that God the Father would say to God the Son these very words, as God the Son takes on human flesh, as, as Jesus becomes incarnate, right? Fully God becomes a man. And I just imagine Father talking to Son, Father giving instructions to his Son saying, my beloved Son, my dear, precious Son, I urge you as a foreigner, as one who is going to go into the world and pass from it, you're gonna go into this world you're gonna draw near the natives as an exile. You're gonna, you're gonna live life with them close in proximity. I urge you, my beloved son, as a foreigner, as an exile, abstain, stay away from, guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your life from their way of life. Watch yourself, stay on alert. You are going to go into a war. You're gonna be born of a virgin. And from the earliest of days, there's gonna be a war to take your life. And as you grow up amongst your peers, you're gonna appear strange, weird. You're gonna be denigrated as the carpenter's son. People are gonna cast you aside. Your own family is gonna wonder if you're losing your mind. Sinful impulses, sinful desires, sinful temptations are gonna be all around you. But don't give yourself to sin. Don't do it. Live such a good life as you go into that world. Live such a good life that though they will slander you, come against you, religious leaders, builders of the king, they will come against you. They will accuse you of doing wrong. They'll put you on trial. They'll hang you on a cross. Live such a good life, my son. Live such a good life in that world that they might see your love, see your good deeds, and ultimately, Glorify us. Son, go into this world. Be of this world. Be in this world, but don't be of it. Live this life. Love that group. Love that people. Show compassion. Bring forth salvation. That many, many, many people might glorify us because of your work, your life, your good deeds on earth as we do them in heaven. It says in Luke 23, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. He died. The non-believer, the pagan, the centurion, the Roman guard, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Surely this man was just. Surely this man was good. It happened right then and there. For those of you that believe in Jesus as the cornerstone, as the living stone, you've seen his good deeds and now you glorify our Father who's in heaven. For those of you in this room that haven't yet had that experience, you can today. Start believing, start trusting that Jesus is the cornerstone of your life. Seeing his good deeds, seeing his salvation. As we move and exist between two worlds, we're gonna face many things and what we expect might not ultimately be what we get. What the builders, what the Israelites expected, they did not get, they got something completely different than what they anticipated. Some of you are in this Christian life and when you said yes to God, you had certain expectations that you might not even realize you had. 
about what your life or your marriage or your family or your work or your ministry was gonna look like and maybe he hasn't met your expectations. In the midst of that, disappointment, hurt, frustration, sinful desires and appetites, struggle, darkness, pain. Don't miss the goodness of God. Don't miss the goodness of Jesus. He's walked this road. He's gone on this path before us. Not only can we wage war against sin, Jesus has, and he has victory over it. That victory is ours, we share in that. Don't lose that, don't miss that. Cling to that this week. Let's pray. Father, we're between two worlds. Foreigners passing through exiles who are setting up camp right next to natives and simultaneously not giving to their way of life and conduct. God, in this room, there are many different people with different backgrounds. It's possible that some have already rejected your message outright for them this morning. They see it as too archaic or barbaric to entertain notions of a Jew in the first century living and dying in the Middle East that, that has any ramifications for our life here and now. But Jesus, still to this day, you are the chief cornerstone. You are precious. Everything keys off you. For those who have made the decision to claim you and to, to love you and to follow you, God, may it be that we wage war, that we wage war and we abstain, that we say no to a way of life and, and conduct that's unbecoming of your gospel. Jesus, you have gone before us. You have lived the life that we need and want, and so help us in this battle. May we, as a church, live such a good life, a life of light and love for our communities. The Twin Cities might see and, and glorify God. In Jesus' name, amen.